0: Being an exiled writer is not as it used to be before. Like, you know, during, for example, Napkov time or other Russian writers who will flee out of uh, the Soviet Union and come here to the United States, and some of them, like Napkov or Kondera in France, they will choose to leave uh, their language and to adopt a new language and writing it. They will choose to burn their ships and, and to forget about the past. But now in our lifetime, it's not like that. You are not in exile because you're still able to know what is happening in your motherland through the internet and through the news. And wallet becomes so connected that everything affects everything.
1: I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. I've been living in Las Vegas for the first part of this year, as part of a fellowship with the Black Mountain Institute. And one of the highlights of this time has been getting to know, as a colleague and a neighbor, the writer Ahmed Najee. I call him a writer because he certainly is a writer, but Ahmed is a multi-hyphenate sort of artist. He's been a journalist. He's been a marketer. He's worked in film. And he became internationally known as a writer of novels when a novel that he wrote called Using Life, which is an experimental dystopian novel about Cairo, got him arrested on charges of, quote, violating public modesty in Egypt, where he is from. Apparently, someone had experienced a sudden drop in blood pressure after reading a sex scene in the novel. And Ahmed became, improbably, the first writer in modern Egyptian history to go to prison for a book he wrote. In prison, he received an outpouring of support from the international literary community. And once he was released, he came to the United States through a Freedom to Write Fellowship through PEN America. After arriving in the United States, he and his wife, Yasmin, came to Las Vegas, where they've been living since 2019 and where I met them. Ahmed agreed to come on the podcast to talk about how the experience of imprisonment and then living in exile, particularly in exile in America, changed his feelings about writing and about his own identity. It's a fascinating conversation. This episode is presented in partnership with the Black Mountain Institute in Las Vegas. Our gratitude to them. Here's Ahmed Naji.
0: I have been waiting your questions because I know how you will usually start the conversation and uh, I've been thinking about this podcast and about uh, the interview for the last weeks because what I notice from other episodes is that usually you ask a writer about like a big event or, or a big thing that is played a turn point in their life. And, uh, I keep thinking, what was the turn point in my life? And I Mm. found there is a lot of turn points. Uh, the reality is I, I live in Egypt. I lived in Egypt most of my life. And the last 10 or 12 years was full of turning points, starting from, um, The revolution, married and divorced twice, um, changing jobs, changing places, cities, uh, going to the jail. And it looks like the whole 10 years was, was so intense and full of turning point. And finally, the real turning point in my life is when I moved to Vegas two years ago. It just... I noticed like in your in your podcasts how like writer when they are talking, they they describe or depict this image of the life as it was like stable or subtle and suddenly the event come and it could be simple things like like falling in love or being hit and protest. But in my case, I feel it's, it's the opposite. It's my life was full of change that I become adopted for this change. I become adopted for this turning over and over. Which returning me us back to your question about what happened in the prison. Because before entering the prison, basically in, in Cairo, in Egypt, you live, you live day by day. So... <clears throat> I wasn't seeing myself as a writer, as, as a full dedicated writer to literature writer. I thought of myself, uh, sometimes journalist, documentary filmmaker. Uh, I worked in, in, in movie industry and production house. and But all that time I was writing. I was writing um, secretly, uh, more to entertain myself and it happened that when I finish what I am writing, I will share it with a close friends, and they were the one who thought, "Well, this is great. You should publish it." This was the case that happened in in all of my books before. But when I ended up at the prison because of my novel, uh, now you are in the prison and you start to 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 rethink in your life and your choice. And you doubt what you are doing. Like you start to ask yourself, is it worth it? I mean, writing, is it worth it to be here in in, in the prison for a year or or more? Um, And it took me like a long journey to a long journey uh, inside the prison to become with this conclusion. Well, it looks like I'm a writer and I have to deal with writing in a serious way. But then I went out of the prison, and two years after, I fled Egypt and I arrived here. And uh, again, I'm facing with the same questions. Is it worth it? Do really, I am a writer? I'm really a writer. Do I continue as a writer? What does it mean to be a writer here in the United States? And what does it mean to be a writer in exile? So I'm facing with this, with all these questions, uh, which I think will be like my, my turning point.
1: There's a story you relate in the essay for the believer about the rhinoceros as, as an, Mm. as a person you knew in prison who was sort of instrumental. And I'm wondering if that was your encounter with him was an important part of that um, thinking or, or if the moment of saying, what is, what is writing? Is it worth it? Should I really engage with it? Came elsewhere in prison.
0: Yeah. So, so for for me in the prison, I I was in the prison because of my writing. I always thought like I will enter the prison at a time of my life. This is like uh, this is this is usually uh, your life will be in Egypt. Like you you can't predict, but for sure you will pass by the prison. And uh, but I didn't thought ever that I will be in the prison because of my literature writing. I thought it would be because of my political activist, activist for for my journalist work, but suddenly I was there for my novel. And uh, I, before that, I have been looking to myself, to my literature writing, to my fiction writing, as it's, I'm writing and I'm doing this work that for sure will not win any literature prize. Okay, And for sure will, will, will not be published by big publishing houses. So I always deal, deal with it as kind of, of um, revolutionary artist practice. Like I know I experiment a lot. I'm writing a hard book. Uh, it's not easy to read. I don't want a book to be easy to read. Back then, at that time, at least, to e- to be easy to read, but, like, to be evocative and to push people to ask a question and rethink in, in, in their life and their choice. Uh And I know by doing this, this I can depend on this as a a source of income. So that's why I had to do other stuff. So that's why I had to give more time of my life to other stuff, to other work that I really didn't enjoy that much. I really didn't think that it has any useful impact. I worked for a for, for, for long time, and I made a lot of money out of working at advertising and marketing, and uh, I think it's just like bullshit jobs, as David <laughs> It's bullshit, kind of bullshit jobs, um, but I have to do it to gain to gain money to 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 have a bread at the table, and suddenly you are in the prison, and you are quite... Sh- I was also, when I entered the prison, I was like 30 going to be 30, 31. And you know, like always people think and and 30 as a turning point in the life, like, oh, I'm 30 now. So like I only have what, like another 30 years in life or 35 years in life? Uh, so what, what what I'm going to do in those 30 years? Uh, so I was thinking and facing with all these questions in the prison. And I was thinking, well, now you are a writer. Everyone is dealing with you as a writer. It's even when you are in the prison, it's right other writers who show it the most solidarity with you. Uh, not the people who are working on advertising. Of course, like those people that work on advertising, they, they, they disappeared. And marketing, they disappeared. <laughs> not the journalist but like other writers, uh, fellows and brothers from Egypt and from Arab world and from all over the world, even from here in the United States, like I I will receive messages through Ben America of other writers, including Zedismas, G.Q. Rowling, many names, who like will send the solidarity and support. And all this makes me think, well, it looks that, other people also seeing me as a writer and i'm here as a writer so maybe it's worth it it's worth it to give it more time uh to focus more in in in, in your writing and to sacrifice other uh stuff including uh including more money like like of course if you dedicated your life or so to your to your life as a an advertising agency or a production or a producer, you would gain more money than working as a writer who have more questions uh, uh, than answer. It was also the story of the Renews sources that showed me other faces of literature. Uh, as, as I wrote it on, on my book, like written evidence, we had this guy in the prison who was like, Totally, totally disaster. He was like ha- he has like a stone heart in his mm. chest, and um, he was in the prison with his father. Like he bought, like he was the reason his father, who was like 75, seventy five, seventy eight years old man, in the prison. And I never saw this guy showing any emotional or any emotion or sympathy towards anything, even his father. But one day I woke up at night. I went to the bathroom and I found him crying. It it was 2 a.m. And uh, he was just like sitting there at the bathroom crying. And when I asked him why he's crying, is there something wrong? He just mentioned and asked me if I read a novel called In My Heart, a Hebrew Girl. A very... Kitch uh, silly romantic novel for teenagers, and um, he was reading it, and he then he told me that it's so good that he's crying while reading it. So he left the book on his bed, and he come here because whenever he will look at the book cover, he will remember sentence from the book, and he will cry. And. Uh, and this made me stop a little bit. I like. I it took me days and nights thinking about it. I started to think, what is hidden in in literature? What is what is hidden power in writing? How come a guy like this guy who just literally like doesn't believe in in anything except money? The government was accusing him of stealing four hundred million dollars. He was just saying uh, that he just got like $200 million, Um, really just like don't care about anything. But suddenly he's reading this novel and he's crying. He's walking around in the next two or three days. He's walking around the cell and trying to convince everyone to read the novel. Like I remember him, he will come and and like I will tell him I will read. It. I, I I don't know, it's not my style. I don't want to read it, and he will open it and insist in reading like lines from it to me. So he was <laughs> like totally crazy. Like you know, when you, you you fall in love with book and you just like keep talking about it forever. Um, so so it was this accident that make me think and about like what is the hidden power in the literature and maybe uh, this power to to give it uh, the rest of my life in a quest for uh, for finding it and try to empower myself and using it and it's a beauty it's a beauty in in contacting with people, in building communication and bridges with people, to be able to uh, evoke and planted a feeling and ideas uh, in, in other people's minds. I had a, I had this experience a lot, but I thought I had this because I am CC, I am artist. But suddenly in the prison, I was seeing like other powerful, masculine, criminal men who, who, who cry because of reading book. So I thought, wow, so, so books are not only for like intellectual, sophisticated, sensitive people, but me myself, I cry a lot. I cry while reading. I just yesterday was finishing this amazing novel called The Gangster that we are all looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, by American Vietnamese uh, writer uh, called uh, I'm sh- for sure I'm pronouncing her name wrong, Lee Tima Thiag. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong. But just I was reading this novel for the last four days and I cried twice while while reading it. So yeah, I I I I had this experience before, like with books and with other kind of art, but I thought just me because like I'm 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 a sensitive and a sissy guy. How
1: did your How did your relationship with uh with writing and with this? feeling of a calling to engage literature for its power to do this for people. How did it change when you moved from from Egypt to the United States and as by your own description, out of a period of your life that was very chaotic and full of change and into a period that was less so?
0: I still trying to, to, to understand and notice this um, changing, uh, well, as 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 I was saying, like life in, in Egypt is happening so fast, and it's hard to predict anything. Um, you always feel that you are you are running, and then you come here and you feel that the rhythm is a slow a little bit but the anxiety is more. Uh, mm. there, is, there is this tense or anxiety that you feel it around around you. Like I always say like how Egypt is a poor country and people there are, 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 are poor, but the problem here is that you feel it and you got it after a while. It's not about that there is poor here, but it's about everyone is in debts. Everyone is on credit card and paying their education loans, their their health insurance loans, um, and there is no like social nets. Like you know, if if you lose your job, you will lose everyone. And um, this kind of anxiety is is new for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, this society rhythm. Emotionally, rhythm uh, at at least is 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 new with me, and um, I'm trying to adapt to this new rhythm. As a writer, I'm facing with a lot of question. I'm facing that uh, all my life I've been writing in Arabic. My English uh, is not that good. It's my second language. And uh I'm here now in the state and and it's been two or three years and it looks like I'm going to continue living here uh, no signs that we could go back any soon to to Egypt, so that's mean I'm a writer living in America, and who know maybe the homeland security will approve my green card. Maybe I'll become American one day also. So you are facing with all this identity questions about what does it mean to to, to continue writing in Arabic in a country that most of people aren't speaking English or Spanish. Mm-hmm. Uh, should I continue writing in Arabic or should I focus in developing my, my English and and Try writing English. Uh, so now, as a writer, you face with questions. First, question about the language: what language you should continue using, and uh, and second, you have question about understanding your position in 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 the new society uh, and adapting to it. I started to understand. Uh, uh, that when I moved here, when I moved here, I and I remember my life in Egypt, I started suddenly to understand that I was privileged in Egypt. Like like in, in my society in, in Egypt, like number one, you had the military and the security officer guys. And then you have judges and religious people like Al-Azhar or the church. And then you have people like me who are, like, with fair skin, Muslims, and male, and men, okay? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And I never thought of of that while I was in Egypt. Like, while in Egypt, I thought, like, we are all suffering. But suddenly, after moving here, uh, and here uh, I become uh, a brown writer, and and exile and immigrants. And maybe in a couple of months, maybe I could be like even a legal immigrant, I don't know. So I suddenly moved from being like number three in the hierarchy of classes to be in the bottom of the leader of the hierarchy of society classes. So there is a process of adopting this uh, position that you are in. And trying to understand it, and that's why, like I'm working on this project now that called 33 and uh, in Eden or in Ice, it's a way to try to understand uh, the, the new society yeah. and the new countries that I am in, and to understand my position as a writer uh, and and. And, and what I'm trying to do or to figure out what I want to do.
1: Yeah. Um, we've talked a little bit about that project, mm-hmm. um, the thirty-three project, but will you tell me about it again <laughs> so that people listening can can know more about it?
0: Yeah, I'm saying. So it's a book. Um the title that I chose called Thirty Three and in Broad Ice or in Evan, or in Eden. Listener could Tell, uh, tell me, like, what is the best? And basically the idea, um, it came from Islamic mythology. In Islamic mythology, when you enter paradise, you are 33 years old. That's mean if you died when you are 16 and you went to heaven, you will be 33 years old. If you died while you are uh, 75 and you went to heaven, you will be 33. And that's because uh, the old Arabs, they thought 33 is the perfect age and the perf- when you have like the perfect body and the perfect mind. Very weird. I, like if I want to realize I don't want my 33 years old. And, uh, but on the other hand, I arrived in United States in August uh, 2018. This was just like one month uh, before turning 33 years old. And in my 33 uh, birthday, um, my daughter uh, was born, Sina. uh, And she was born uh, in the United States, so she was American. And suddenly, like you have all these elements. You are a new country, you are... You are becoming thirty-three. They are telling to you, it's a perfect body, and uh, you are in a new country. You have you are a father. You are a father also. So the book is trying to look into all of these elements and subject through looking to and analyzing and studying like. immigrants policy and health care policy United States and comparing it to, to, to my personal experience. So the book is, is going around like main five or six themes. First one is about my color, my name. It's about like discovering colors when moving to United States. Uh, I came up from a culture that Really, uh, there is racism everywhere, there is racism in Egypt, but I would say like racism in Egypt is more depending on, on religion and uh, social class. Uh, here it's more on race and uh, and ethnic and, and skin color. So you suddenly arrive here and you discover your new color. Like I grew up and everyone describing my skin, which is fair skin as a white, like you know, but mm-hmm. you arrive here and you will make an interview uh, or get invited to event, and they will introduce you as a brown writer a word that I never heard before moving here. Uh, so, I'm trying to understand these things about like color and what it has to, to do with me, and also looking to this funny uh, dilemma and introduction that's. When, when my daughter got born and they brought to us like the official paper to write her name and their details, I discovered they asking you a lot of questions about like the girl race, the mother race, the father race. And, mm. uh, and, and it was my first time to interact with the American race system and I couldn't understand what I was supposed to do. So I asked my wife who's a lawyer and she lived here longer than me and she was like white we are all white. And then she explained to me that according to the American law, um, uh, all Arab are whites also. So the main theme is looking into this color and this dilemma of, of Arab and white and Middle Eastern and white people and, and skin color. The second theme is about um, um, health care for babies, um, I have a daughter who's American and I have another son who's living in Egypt who's Egyptian and uh, the difference between how he grew up and how she growing up depending on like how the health care system is dealing with babies here you start to do research and you discover that after the World War, America invested a lot and still invest in manufacture and, and uh, raise the bar of uh, the growing standards for babies uh, comparing to other world. So I'm looking into this and I'm looking I'm looking into like
1: like they want they want the I'm sorry to interrupt. They want you mean they're like um trying to increase the target size and weight of babies?
0: Yes, 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 yes. It's like it's a funny a funny story about that. Um my daughter was born in DC and we were there. So every time we would go to the doctor and here in America, when you go to the doctor, they do a very weird thing. After you finish, they give you all this paper and it, it includes like a lot of charts and, uh, and infograph. And it will show you like your, your kid growth is supposed to be like that. And they will give you like the charts. And every time when we were see our daughter, were like at the line or blow the line.
1: Oh, like the per- growth percentile?
0: Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, like her weight and her tall. So of course, like that, this make uh, that this made us like feel so bad. And and my wife was like, "I'm a bad mother. She doesn't eat. She doesn't grow." And then we move here in a ve- in Vegas, and um, suddenly we meet with this. Uh, we now have this amazing pediatrician, amazing doctor, who's like American, but he's from Philippine uh, origins. Mm-hmm. And when we visited him, we asked him about mm-hmm. the shards and he was like, no, 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 don't care about this. This is like uh, for American things. Like, it's not like us, our our babies and our bodies. <laughs> is fine. It's American things. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, so that's, I think that was, that was two that, the first. That was the, the second, two of, but uh-huh. yeah,
0: it's connected also to the idea, uh, I'm focusing on on also in male body, not female body, because there is a lot of things that truth about female body, I think, and because I, I find myself as a male, having a male body, and uh, so I'm looking into like the image or the perfection of, um, of the male body. What is the perfect male body? Um, and so I'm looking also in, in, in going to the gym and the gym culture here in the United States comparing to gym culture in, in Egypt. So this is like the other teams that I'm working on. Uh, one last teams also is about um, growing old as a male, uh, like... What happened to your body as a male when you grow up? When, when, when you farewell and say goodbye to the youth, and how you deal with, with your body changing. And how masculinity, how frugal masculinity got affected by, by getting old. Um, the other theme also that I'm working on is about burying body. Um, so getting rid of bodies and burying your pod, burying bodies is essential in, in all culture but in Egypt we only have one way, it's like you put it onto the ground at the ground, but you come here United States and um, you go like, like I was getting my driver's license and then they will ask you if you want to be an origin, organ donors and uh, I remember like I froze in in, in the front of this question and then I asked the cleric, can I think a lot more? I need more time to think in this question. Mm -hmm. And, and, and he looked at me as I'm crazy. He was like, no, you have to sign the paper now to get your driver license uh, but yeah, you have a lot of options here uh, to, to how to get rid of your body. So so the whole book is about, again, it's about like l- discovering my my new position in the United States through looking to my body and how the American uh, immigrants and legal system is dealing with this body. I'm looking also in like how the homeland security and the immigrants law is dealing with bodies like you know, for example, there is a list of diseases that um, if you had it before, you would not be eligible to have green card or or to get uh, to live in America. And uh, this list of of uh, virus and disease, uh, including a lot of diseases that some of it like it's, it's easy to cure now, you know. Uh, and it keep it changing. Like I remember, I was just reading, and I discovered that if you happen to have or had HIV, you are not eligible for green card or or to live here. But this was changing; it was a change during uh, Obama era. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, there is other crazy diseases that you could basically cure it by by. Tylenol or antibodies or something like that.
1: I think you were telling me tuberculosis is on that list?
0: I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think so.
1: I have to look that up. It occurs to me while listening to you describe this new book, having just read Using Life, the, the novel that uh, for which you went to prison in Egypt, that a lot of your writing is about um, place and about an individual trying to navigate an encounter with a strange and sometimes hostile place. So much of Using Life is about Cairo and is about, um, you know, the narrator... Uh, and the narrator's body as as a desiring thing, as an individual, as, you know, uh, as a as a corporeal thing trying to navigate Cairo. And now you're describing this new book and it is a lot about your body trying to navigate and self-define here.
0: Thank you for highlighting this. Uh, I really didn't notice this before. Uh just, just now, while, while you were asking me these questions, I was thinking in what you're saying and what I'm doing. And I'm think, I think like it's choosing writing about my body and bodies now, maybe because I'm disoriented about my place now. I don't know mm-hmm. what is my place now. Um, I have been living in Las Vegas for the last two years. And this is like a long time in my life. Like even when I was in Egypt, I was moving from city to other city, from neighborhood to neighborhood. Uh, but living in downtown Las Vegas, this is like the longest time that I have lived in one place since I was like 18 or 19 years old. And I just recently, after I got the driver's license and now I have a car, I just recently started, sometimes I will drive the car without any aim, just driving around the city, uh, trying to understand it. And uh, just lately I was working on a small text in in my journal and I found for the first time, like I started writing a little bit about Las Vegas uh, as a city. And... um, uh, so, yeah, so maybe like writing and moving about writing about body, it's also like about creating uh, or using the body as a place because I lost the city now. I lost Cairo. If I'm going to write about Cairo, uh, I will be writing about cities that doesn't exist anymore. It's only exists in my mind, in, in in my memory. I'm adapting I'm, I'm, I'm adopting and, uh, I look, I look backward and, uh, I can't see any ships. Maybe the ships that, that bring me in here left already. So I only have what I have, I, I, what I have here, Las Vegas and, um, and there is a lot of similarity. I remember I was reading a novel by the American, the African-American writer Chris Sabana, and he has this novel called uh, The Secret Las Vegas. And uh, in this novel, he's describing Las Vegas as an African city because it's surrounded by desert. Uh, the grandiose fleshly of the facade of the city doesn't reflect or showing uh how much it's, it's it's miserable and full of poor and homeless at the same time. Mm. And and uh, and step by step, I I found my rhythm at this city, especially Las Vegas. I think if if we continued lived in DC or any other cities, especially in East Coast, uh, my life would be so much blue and desperate. But Mm -hmm. since we moved in Las Vegas, uh, it's less and less sad, and 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 it's an open city really. I was lucky first before because like I'm here as a fellow um, uh, at BMI Black Mountain Institute, and my fellowship and people there just amazing, amazing, helpful people i'm surrounded by this lovely uh, uh talented community of young writers and teachers in and and at the creative college who become my friends so it was easy to build the community here and to have friends friends that you that that you share the same interest towards like Books and literature and the art, and this is very important because I was here alone. I arrived in this city and we didn't know anyone, and uh, we were suffering and still suffering from post trauma disorder PTSD. But suddenly, to be easy to be in, so, in, in a city where it's easy to build a community and the friends, it helped a lot. It helped a lot to under a lot of things uh, about what's happening around me, uh, to educate myself, and to find the right people to exchange your feeling and your ideas with them. Uh, The city also, and I think anyone visited Dubai or any Gulf state knows that, but like Las Vegas and how it design and architecture is the same as uh, if you visited Dubai, or any Gulf city. And it's the same as if you visited many new cities in the Middle East. I was surprised by that. I remember the first time we arrived here, me and my wife, we were shocked. We were like, wow, it's like Saudi Arabia. Because because it's in, in the middle of the desert and how the city is designed, the street is lined, it's the same. Of course, I discovered after that, In the after the oil and gas boom in the Middle East, that changing the lives there. People, American investors, especially from West Coast, they adopted the style of building cities in West Coast, like like Las Vegas and Los Angeles, and uh, they moved it to to Middle East and Gulf countries. Mm. Uh, So now, and I grew up, when I was a child, we lived in Kuwait, so now when I'm moving in in when we move to Vegas, um, it's like being in a new city, but this new city has a connection with your memory.
1: That's beautiful. What a <laughs> what a strange coincidence of life.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the city and, and of course now the, the and and the funny thing is of course now that Golf, golf money is the money that is supporting Las Vegas. Like, like last year, for example, during the pandemic, the city didn't have access to uh, to, to coronavirus test kit, and the federal government during Trump administration didn't send them enough testing kit. So it was MGM uh, CEO, uh, like you know MGM the resort, who mm-hmm. called MBZ the ruler of Emirat. And they sent uh, uh, two hundred thousand test kit especially dedicated for Las Vegas. <laughs> and you discovered <laughs> like I that was wish- yeah, it happened. It happened last summer, and it was a big thing. Like the mayor of Las Vegas, they went out and they sank it. The Emirati rulers and the MBZ and so on. But then, like, I started to do like a, a small research, and I discovered that in two thousand eight, when um, when the market fell down and the economic crisis happened, uh, Vegas was affected, and the prices of land and and other. Casinos here went down, so it was Dubai and uh, Emirati money uh, that poured into the city, and they already like own the convention centers and a lot of big project here in the city. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 a very interesting uh, circle, and it's also showing me that. Being an exiled writer is not as it used to be before. Like, you know, during, for example, Napkov time or other Russian writers who will flee out of uh, the Soviet Union and come here to the United States, and some of them, like Napkov or Melancholyta in France, they will choose to leave uh, their language and to adopt a new language and writing it. They will choose to burn their ships and and to forget about the past. But now in our lifetime, it's not like that. You are not in exile because you're still able to know what is happening in your motherland through the internet and through the news. And wallet becomes so con- connected that everything affects everything. I mean, mm-hmm. we just all been through what happened last year. It's just like a small market in a city in China affect all of us, all our life in the last year. So, also when when you are thinking about exile writers, as my position, and looking into history of other writers, yeah, you learn a lot. There is similarity, but there is a unique thing in 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 our moment, the moment you are living.
1: We started by talking about your your decision to take to take yourself you know, seriously as a writer to say, I am a writer and this is what I'm going to do um, and how that decision has had changed over time. And I'm, I wanted to come back to that before we end our conversation. I think by asking um, in this period of disorientation, as you described and, and of adjustment, what are your, what are your hopes for who you are and will be as a writer, and for what your writing might do.
0: Now, mm-hmm. literally, I don't know. I don't have an answer <laughs> for this questions. Like, if you asking me this question two years, I will be sure. Like, I will give you three pages answering. But now, my hope is first to to understand my new position. Uh, uh, and I hope to to this will happen through my journey in writing this book, thirty three years and in paradise. Uh, and then I will be able to 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 think on my next step. I hope also to gain more conf- confidence in my English. Uh, I think. I think I, I I want to move in writing in English, but uh, I still have a long journey to do this. Um, I hope to have to have to find to find the key to open up uh, the English language for me. Uh, I hope one day I will be I will be confident enough to write fiction on it. Um, I hope I will be able one day to dream in English. I think if I started to dream in English, I'll be able to write in it.
1: Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar, Strauss, and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week.